Good evening, and welcome to Three Moves Ahead. I'm your host, Bruce Garrick. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Jack Green, a noted game designer, longtime hobby member, uh, and all-around good guy. Uh, Jack, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. So, Jack, you, for the listeners who don't know you, um, give people a little bit of a background of... Um, how you got into the hobby. I believe that uh, it was back in the 60s and you were, uh, you played with little green army men and you uh, <laughs> eventually from that point got into uh, games like Gettysburg. How did, how did you end up being a gamer? Well, actually it goes back to the 50s. <laughs> oh, okay. And it was little green army soldiers and it was bottle tops. I used to collect bottle tops in fifth and sixth grade and make armies of Byerleys and Coke regiments and, oh, wow. uh, Oh gosh, uh, seven up uh, regiments and uh, and you know so I, and in sixth grade I did a uh, reenactment of the passing of the forts at New Orleans for Fourth of July <laughs> with uh, and I put a monitor in there with a coffee can for the uh -huh. on top of a board. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that was a lot of fun back then. And then uh, in sixth grade I saw a copy of Gettysburg, the old old ver the original version. Mm -hmm. uh, play, being played by a sixth grade friend of mine and his eighth grade brother and mm -hmm. uh, i got hooked yeah well that's uh you know that's interesting that's that's an age where some of us really became gamers i i think sixth grade was the time when i um gosh i can't remember what it was. i think probably luftwaffe or some game some similar game like that Richthofen's war as well um those were all that was a time when uh when the hobby was really I guess that it seemed like there were there were no bounds, although um, we were, you know, it was still a, obviously tiny little niche, and there wasn't as much board gaming as there is now. It kind of seemed like there were all these possible all these possibilities. Um, well, and you kind of, I would disagree with you. I would really, I, I would say that in the late fifties and early sixties, with uh, D Day, with uh, Gettysburg, with um, well, you really can't say Africa Corps because I think that was after Charles Roberts went out of business. Certainly, Tactics Two, they mm -hmm. were selling tremendous numbers. They were they were selling hundreds of thousands of copies. Well, you know, at least with a one in front, you know, 110, 120, 130 thousand copies of a, of okay. a game company. In fact, that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why Charles Roberts went out of business is that he uh, geared up uh, with uh, way too heavy of a staff and uh, had too heavy of a payroll, and when things uh, took a couple hit cups uh mm -hmm. he, he went out of business interesting well I, I okay so maybe individual copies uh individual titles were selling uh huge uh, yes. compared to what what's happening now um but i think the overall and we're just i mean i was talking more more board gaming in general because you know th games like uh gloomhaven and and things like that uh you know obviously obviously settlers of Catan. uh these are these are uh games that sell they've now sold millions of copies right um, but let's Let's just talk about about historical war games. So, um, there were few titles um, that came out at you know any given year might only have you know one or two games, right? Exactly I mean, correct. Yeah. So you, I, I would assume you guys played these games over and over and over. Yes. And became sort of experts in these in these uh, individual games. Oh gosh, I mean, uh, streets, uh, streets of Stalingrad, the Stalingrad from uh, Avalon Hills. What somebody published a book on strategy on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Phillies, I saw that was uh, yeah how how to play Stalingrad. It's interesting, um, which uh, which actually you can you can buy for like five bucks and download. Um, but that's a very different, I think. Uh, 
hobby than it exists today. I think you'd agree with me in that, that, uh, you know, now we're getting, you know, how many games, you know, dozens of games a year and everybody plays one game. I, I have, I'm having um, uh, a hard time getting people to play something like Pericles, you know, a second time, uh, even though it's so incredibly, uh, you know, different that because they're just, you know, all these other games that are that are coming out and people want to play that. And why play a game that you've already played when there are 10 other games that you haven't played? Um, but but I guess my point is that this is a this is a, a hobby that you are in that you sort of you it was possible to sort of know the entire hobby. Right. And you knew all the people involved. Um you you knew or knew knew of them right there was there was SPI Jim Dunnigan was running that in New York um, and uh, you knew Dana Lombardi uh, tell me how you got uh, how you got started Dana, you got started with Dana Lombardi really early right he had a co- company called Conflict Games uh, actually it was Simulations Design Corporation SDC okay and his his magazine was Conflict oh that's right okay and Essentially, uh, my first wife and I got back from uh, our my first trip in, to Europe, and um, we were living in the Bay Area, and I'd heard about this game company in San Diego, uh, and I thought, well, look, why don't we move down to San Diego? And she said, okay, so we moved down there, and I, I said, I'll go knock on Dana's door and see if he needs a play tester. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found where he was. I stopped by, and... Um, a few days later, uh, he goes, well, how would you like to be our simulations director? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about it. I'm sure, not realizing what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, basically, it just went from there. I had, I had, what I did is I had written a very short two-page typewritten uh, article. I can't even remember what it was about. Uh, I, I've got a, a rough idea. I think it was about the, what world, war gamers were like and their personalities and their psyche. And I, I gave it to him. And the fact that I actually turned in something to him was what uh, triggered him because I know this will come to as a shock to many of the listeners, but sometimes gamers say, well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, and they never do it. <laughs> And uh, right. uh, it's, you know, it's just like there's a, a one of the cardinal aspects of our hobby, I think, is uh, we tend to be uh, overly critical of stuff or uh-huh, that's uh, true. Or, or, or critical right out of the box over something. So anyway, uh-huh. uh, that's how Dane and I hooked up together. But, of course, the, the problem with Conflict Magazine, which Kevin Zucker had gotten his start there, too. Uh-huh. Kevin Zucker of um, Operational Size Group OSG, just for the listeners. Exactly. And all the Napoleonic stuff that he's done over the decades. And, oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, essentially, it was a bi-monthly that was coming out bi-annually. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I uh, actually financed issue number five to get it uh, out from the printer. Mm-hmm. And uh, to make a long story short, Dana owed me some graphics, which is uh, some of the early graphics in uh, the first two games from uh, Quarter Deck Games, where it was uh, helped out by Dana's work to help pay off getting right. number five out. <laughs> Paying off the debt, huh? So, I mean, the uh, the, the were you a um, were you planning on being? It sounds like you said you were, you you decided to move down to San Diego because you heard there was a game company there. Is that what you were you were planning to be? Yeah. a full time uh, game uh, company. 
uh, designer or, or, or employee or things like that? I had no I, I had no interest in being a game designer. I did not consider myself a game designer. Mm. Uh, I enjoyed writing about them. I enjoyed playing them. I enjoyed talking mm-hmm. to people about them. Uh, we'd had a game club in high school on the peninsula in the mm-hmm. area. Uh, so all those things were just factors, and I, 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 I'm a type of person that when I like something, I tend to like it a lot or too much, depending on the okay. point of view. So I was hooked, and uh, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, and that that um, association with Dana, you said, led to the uh, him doing some work for you on Quarter Deck Games. Um, but but in between that time. You actually worked for Avalon Hill directly, correct? Right. So um, the following year, when I re- by then knowing that you know SDC was really uh, hobbled and wasn't really going to go anywhere, um, I kind of have- because of uh, of finance because of financing. Yeah, it was just not enough money to run the company. Yeah, I mean uh, Dana's Dana's um, a font of brilliant ideas and talent especially uh, back in those days, graphically now and just about anything he does. Mm-hmm. But um, financially, we were uh, in a giant hole and we weren't mm-hmm. going to go anywhere. Like I say, you know, you can't publish a bi-monthly, bi-annually. Right. So um, I went through a kind of a life crisis, got a divorce, ended up moving to Isla Vista, moving into a commune, uh, met uh, who, and who, by the way, was run, uh, not run, but one of the members of it was from my high school group, hmm. Phil Seymour. And uh, we had visited him on our way up to Alaska. And on our way back is when we got our d- 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 divorce. We we drove hmm. to Alaska on the Alcan and got a divorce on when we got back. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's a story there, but we won't go into that. And, All right. <laughs> So anyway, um, I moved into a commune in Isla Vista, and uh, Larry Hoffman uh, moved in about uh, six months later. And he and his brother Stan were old uh, gamers, especially Larry. And Larry and I have become best friends over the years. And he lives uh, about three miles from my house right now. Does uh, work? We work. We work together on various things, for, even to this day. So that was very cool. And mm-hmm. then we heard about Origins One. It was going to be held in Baltimore. So yeah, the very first Origins. So Larry and I decided we would uh, uh, play in a tournament, and we'd go back there. And uh, the new game just came out from Battleline called uh, Wooden Ships and Iron Men. Mm-hmm. And we got a copy of it early on. There was going to be a tournament of it. And uh, we played it, I figured, we played it 36 times together <laughs> before mm-hmm. we went back east. And okay. he ended up taking fourth, and I ended up taking second in the tournament. Oh. And the guy I lost to was from MIT, and he won the Air Force tournament the following year, <laughs> which Air Force and Wooden Ships and Iron Men actually use share similar mechanics, and they're both designed by uh, S. Craig Taylor. Yes, that's true. Yes, very good point. Uh, anyway, we had a, a, a heck of an adventure, uh, and I met Randy Reed there, and uh, you know uh, we visited the, the Dunnigans, and we, we visited SPI, and uh, stayed at Richard Berg's place, and. Hmm. overnight and uh visited gdw and uh that's where the cathedrals of wargaming article that i wrote which uh, is probably one of my better articles uh, certainly one of the more well-known ones and 
anyway, uh, Avalon Hill was looking for somebody. And at that point, I was thinking of leaving California. And so I moved to Baltimore and uh, got hired full time as a press helper at uh, the uh, Monarch, which owned Avalon Hill. Eric Dot's operation is uh, in, a, in a press room. And then I worked uh, after hours uh, part time uh, at Avalon Hill. Mm-hmm. And and you got to know a lot of people there. Uh, Kevin Zucker, um, who ha- was a designer at Avalon Hill for a while. Uh, Mick Ull, um There's uh, there's a whole bunch of stories I'm sure there. Uh, one thing I do want to ask about was, it sounds like that that company had uh, sort of they they weren't really sure, or maybe they weren't aware of of how to really run. A gaming company. They were they were a printing company, right? I mean, yeah. and and that was what they knew is how to print stuff. But that gave them a huge advantage over people like SPI because SPI had to pay a printer, and Avalon Hill just sort of sent the stuff downstairs. Uh, pretty much. Uh, there's a, a couple stories there. Uh, one is that they would actually uh, overcharge Avalon Hill for their printing services, and that actually got uh, the attention of. Uh, uh, the tax people at some point. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, and it, it was. I'm sure it was, it was a, a, something to do with shifting money in the books because yeah. they're all the same, all, all owned by the same people. That's yeah, accounting stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, but uh, yes, no, that wasn't an, an advantage. But uh, the disadvantage, of course, is, I mean, there was the main plant on Hartford Road, which, if any of you pull out your old Avalon Hill games, you'll see Hartford Road is... Yeah, 4517. I still remember that number. Okay, well, I worked up there for a couple of weeks when people were on vacation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if there was 100 people there, but it was, it was very close to 100 people, and there were presses all over. Mm-hmm. Whereas where I worked, which was uh, literally uh, two or three stories uh, down below Avalon Hills office across from the railroad station in downtown Baltimore, mm-hmm. uh, was an old rundown building. Um, there were three of us, the press, the press operator, myself, and a guy who did dives, uh, for cutting dives in, in another room. Mm-hmm. And just a little background, the way Monarch worked is that when one of, uh, Eric Dot's competitors went out of business, he would go and look at the books. And, mm-hmm. and and see if there was something that he could salvage. And then a lot of times he would buy these companies for a song. And so what would then happen is there, there might be an employee or two who would come along and they would actually still be working for, uh, you know, Jim's printing. Mm-hmm. But they were owned by Monarch. Okay. And I'd be literally when I was in the Hartford office uh, or in the plant, really, uh, I would literally sometimes be standing next to somebody who worked for a different company working on a different machine, doing something that was different, but it, we were all part of the Monarch family. Huh. And that must have, did that cause havoc with Avalon Hill products? Oh, only in the sense that uh, they had no idea uh, how to, uh, they were dealing with artists. I mean, game designers are artists. And mm-hmm. uh, running a press, there may be a, a, an element of art to it, but it's pretty mechanical. I mean, you know, you, you want to make sure that the ink is right and that it uh, the papers uh, fitted into the uh, the feeder correctly, and uh, and that what you're getting coming off the press, you know, pulling a, a sheet every once in a while to check for you know over inking or whatever. I mean, there's elements. It's, there's a, certainly a skill set involved. Don't mm-hmm. misunderstand me. But it's not right. the same as being an artsy craftsy 
Uh, it's not creative. It's not a creative process. It's a, it's a trade process. Right. And of course, the classic line, which I've repeated more than once, is that uh, Steve Skelly, who was the number two at uh, Monarch and who was the hatchet man, mm -hmm. uh, you know, saying that, uh, well, you know, these games, I mean, there's not much difference than selling undergarments. You know, I mean, uh, selling an undershirt or a pair of underwear. And it's like, well, no, I don't think it's quite the same thing. Well, yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> fundamental misunderstanding of, of how the hobby works. But, uh, well, it sounds to me, I mean, all the things that I've read uh, sound make it sound like uh, it's amazing that Avalon Hill lasted as long as they did um, in terms of as, as a gaming company, since uh, there's certainly some inefficiencies in mismanagement. But um, it, during all that time, you actually did something uh, that was quite notable, which is that you got the second edition of Bismarck uh, out the door. Yes. Um, sort of, that's a, that's a thing that you, I think, was that one of the first games that you really had such a significant input into? Uh, well, I had done a fair amount of playtesting, certainly at right. uh, SDC, uh, the, the, you know, Calk and Goal and, you know, uh, others that came out from there. Right. But here you had, you, I mean, you really redid Bismarck. Oh, absolutely. No, the, the story on this is that Tom Shaw came to me and I was, you know, just doing various little things around the office and somebody decided that uh, I should design a game. And Tom Shaw came to me and said, well, we want you to design a game, Jack. And it was like, oh, really? Oh, I mean, I, I, again, I was kind of dragged into it. I wasn't like, you know, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, Tom. Why did you say yes? Well, uh, because I was asked. And I, okay. and, and I figured, I said, well, what, what's my strengths in terms of mm -hmm. uh, you know, knowledge on a topic? Yep. And I said, uh, well, I could do a, a game on Seven Weeks War between Prussia and Germany <laughs> in 1866. Uh -huh. Tom Shaw very thoughtfully and intelligently said, I, I don't think that would do very well on the market. Yeah. And even though I could tell you a lot about uh, the various commanders and actions in that. So anyway, um, uh, he said, well, we have this we know you have an interest in Navy stuff. Uh, we're thinking of redoing Bismarck. And that's basically where it came about. And uh, I had a lot of background in Navy stuff and Navy miniatures as a high, in high school and, and after high school, uh, and played Jetland. So that was a game. That was sort of that was sort of a game um, genre, not genre. That that subject was something that you had been interested in for a long time. Is that the case? Yeah, exactly. And played Midway a ton of times because uh, back in high school there was one guy who could beat me at everything except Midway. So we played twenty <laughs> twenty four games of it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's basically how it happened. <laughs> okay, and 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 so so tell walk me through the process of you know here's a game Bismarck uh, which became quite well known but really became I think well known based on the second edition which is your edition not the original edition. Um, I mean that's the game that's the copy that I have upstairs. Um, that's the copy that most people I think have. It's the Avalon Hill edition. What 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 happened uh, after they said okay, uh, Jack, we need you to design this game. Um, Obviously, Bismarck kind of existed already. Uh, how, how did that? How did you go? Because you did you did sort of a design and development process with that, right? Right. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Don Greenwood, I believe, and I, I, I'm trusting my memory here, which may not, but I believe Don Greenwood uh, basically came to me and said, "Look, Jack, what we want to do is we want to capture." The original game. So if you look at uh, the second edition of Bismarck, it's really three games. There's the mm -hmm. uh, kind of the basic game. There's a basic game with some bells and whistles. And then there's the advanced game, which is essentially uh, a miniatures game. It's a, yeah, 
Exactly. It's a miniatures. It's basically a miniatures game in a box. It's, it, it, right. With the with the strategic uh, board being the operational aspect of bringing about whatever you're going to fight. Right. So uh, now you have to understand that wherever, whenever I do anything in, with games, 95% of the time, I'm coming from a historical standpoint. So the first thing I did was uh, read a tremendous amount. And then, for example, um, there's an expert, and he's still uh, in the business, so to speak, um, Nathan Oaken, who, okay. if you have a question on guns and armor, uh, go to Nathan Oaken. And I knew him from Oxnard, which is uh, uh, between, uh, it's near Ventura, south of Santa yeah. Barbara. Oxnard, California. Yep. Exactly. Uh, or as the locals refer to it as Oxnard. So anyway, um, he and I had been acquaintances, and uh, he he supplied some information to me. And then I have a a couple other friends who have been long, long friends uh, who are uh, historically very strong, Andrew Smith in in Britain being one of them. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I I could draw on their resources as well as uh, reading a great deal. So, so I came from a historical standpoint. We basically redid the original game without the staggered squares, mind you. That was that was Mick Yule's uh, uh, input, which I think was an excellent act of input. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up developing the game after I left Avalon Hill and, and finishing it up. Okay. So, uh, essentially, uh, we adopted the basic game, tried to make it historically more accurate in terms of the ships and such. Uh, then we added some bells and whistles. You know, you can bring the Graf Zeppelin in. Uh, you can bring in uh, the Terpits or, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, Americans enter the war early. Um, then um, the uh, advanced game was basically my interpretation of uh, miniatures rules that I digested over a long, long time. I do not consider myself a particularly creative designer that comes up with new ideas i synthesize mm-hmm. a great deal okay and i i make it a point of trying to see as much especially when i was younger as much as i possibly could from different sources in different places so that uh i could then take what i needed pick and choose to make what i think was the an accurate picture well i think a lot of good designers say that the most the, the most powerful tool they have is borrowing yeah, I think so too. <laughs> so um, I think uh, Martin Wallace actually said that uh, in uh, one of our podcasts. But uh, so so you so you created this this game uh, Bismarck, which which really is you know it's 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 like it's a miniatures game with a scenario generator, uh, exactly which is right. the, to the strategic level. Um, but it sort of set the uh, set one end of the bar for uh, for board game naval board games. I think the other end of the bar was War at Sea, um, which <laughs> is not. Not a bar of quality. It's a bar of uh, sort of historical veracity. Uh, I think the game. I think as a game, War at Sea is actually quite interesting. Um, you have to accept certain things, like it's a bag of dice game, and uh, you're going to have some. Well, have a lot of concessions to playability, um, but uh, I, those are. I think those are two two ends of the spectrum of, of gaming at that time. And you certainly established the, the, the sort of historical uh, verisimilitude and, and uh, accuracy end of that. But then you left Avalon Hill uh, and the game got finished. Uh, Mick finished the game. What did you do after that? Um, 
Well, um, that was uh, 76, right after the bicentennial. The, I went back to uh, Isla Vista. That was my uh, second uh, uh, stay in Isla Vista. I ended up staying there three times. Mm. Uh, didn't stay. You like that place? Oh, yeah. It was. Uh, uh, it, it was. It was quite interesting. Ber- Berkeley by the sea, I think, is a good way of looking at it, um, or in a rural setting. So anyway, uh, I got an opportunity to work with Battleline over the summer. And I went down to Douglasville, Georgia, and spent uh, the best part of three months um, there. And then uh, it culminated in uh, my working on Objective Atlanta, which is the one game that I've never gave myself a credit because what I inherited was I already had the counter sheet printed. This was from by another designer who I believe it was his only game design. And mm-hmm. don't ask me whose name was because I, I, I'm – picture his face, but I can't remember his name. I'm sure it's on the internet. Yeah, but uh, uh, it, it, it was really uh, Atlanta campaign as seen by the quartermaster. Hmm. There was uh, um, as many supply counters as there were units in the game, as I recall, or, or very close. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it just wasn't a very fun game. Anyway, I worked on that and did other stuff, did some play testing, uh, enjoyed myself in Georgia. As, you know, as, as a, uh, it, it, as much as it was a cultural shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we drove up to uh, uh, Origins. This would have been Origins three wow. from um, Douglasville. Obviously, I had been at uh, Origins two as an Avalon Hill staff. There's a picture mm-hmm. of me in my Avalon Hill shirt that. Uh, uh, um, Roger McGowan has mm-hmm. posted more than once. So after that, um, I took some money and uh, went to Europe uh, for a trip and um, piled around there. And when I got finished there, I came back to uh, Isla Vista and uh, was tinkering at that point, uh, late 70s, on um, Iron Bottom Sound slash Destroyer Captain. Actually, just okay. Captain predates Iron Bottom Sound. The Iron Bottom Sound was the first one that was published. Predates it conceptually. Conceptually. Oh, and in there was Paper Wars. Paper Wars was uh, also in Isla Vista, the third time around, uh, where I met Rick Spence, who's best known for Bitter End and Gallipoli, the original mm-hmm. Gallipoli. Um, and there were five uh, partners. Uh, of which we were all equal, and uh, that's where I became very leery of partnerships. <laughs> Why is that? Well, Rick and I did the vast amount of work. Jim Bumpus did a fair amount of work, and the other two partners got a check at the end. So it was... Um, that doesn't seem fair. Mm-mm. No. Uh, it, it was a learning experience, but... Uh, uh, in, 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 I mean, so much... Gaming, is in terms of, of making a living at gaming, there was only one year... That I made a living at it, because even when I was at Avalon Hill, I still had my main paycheck was from the print business. I see. Yeah, and that's uh, I. I mean, unless you're, um, you know, Gary Gygax or, or mm-hmm. uh, Jim Dunnigan or, or Don Green for for, for years, mm-hmm. you're not making a living at this. But uh, ultimately, when I ran Quarter Deck Games and with my idealistic. Uh, uh, view of trying to do things. Um, there's an interesting story about shrink wrap in here um, <laughs> that um, I learned how not to run a business. And yeah. I took those lessons I learned from that into my real world career as a uh, inspector for a soil and geology firm mm-hmm. and became a partner in the business that uh, my 
experience from gaming and running a game company uh, pay dividends, big dividends. Yeah. So, so well, you a story about shrink wrap. Yeah, that tell me what you shrink wrap. Uh, good, bad. What do you think? <laughs> well, if you recall, some of us went through the oil embargo in the mid early seventies, where yep. there were gas lines were long and price of gas, and you were limited to ten gallons and blah blah blah. And a lot of us were, uh, and this was still at SDC, were. Uh, a uh, couple of the guys, um, oh gosh, what's his, uh, uh, can't think of his name now, but uh, the, uh, there was a whole school of thinking that, well, if we don't conserve oil, we won't be able to make model tanks anymore or heart valves, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and which I think there's a strong case to be made for that. Well, I hated the concept of shrink wrap. Because to me, you're taking a hydrocarbon and you're wrapping a game around so that the person gets this really good sense of opening the shrink wrap and opening the mm -hmm. game box. Well, it also protects it. I mean, it does uh, uh, keeps it from getting scuffed up. Mm -hmm. Well, I tried various different things. I had little stickers on the end of the box to hold it together, special stickers, so I could not avoid so I could avoid shrink wrapping. A couple of my distributors, they would take my games and they'd run them through their shrink wrap machines. <laughs> right, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. People aren't going to yeah. accept that. Exactly. Well, to make a long story short, I realized at the end of the old experience that wasn't going to work out, and we ended up buying a shrink wrap machine, a used one, and, and had it in our garage for ten years, and uh, for uh, SDC uh, for SDC for uh, World in Flames when my wife and I imported uh, World in Flames and, and distributed them. To, oh, Harry Rollins. Yeah, well, we distributed them here for years, and that we made good good money on that because he sells them. He, he sells tens of thousands of units where I was selling a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand, three hundred, yep. thousand. Sure. So anyway, years later, this came up as a topic on Facebook, and it turns out that two of the most liberal guys in the hobby, along with myself. Jack Rady and Kevin Zucker, mm -hmm. OSG, People's War Games, mm -hmm. they had all three, all of us three independently had tried to figure out how to not use shrink wrap. Hmm. <laughs> so it didn't work for any of us, but no, uh, and it's never going to work. And as, as the as the uh, ubiquitous unboxing videos, uh, which I can't quite understand, but uh, those things show just how how important it is for people to uh, have the idea of a pristine product that they get to examine for the first time. And I think the shrink wrap is a big part of that. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, but uh, so so now we're we're about the time. You know, you're talking about your quarter games. It, so you decided you were going to make Iron Bottom Sound, and I, I have to tell you my personal experience with Iron Bottom Sound. Um, Iron Bottom Sound was, uh, I think it was a little expensive um, for me. As a, I, I remember I was um, in, gosh, I would have had to have been about seventh grade, and I think I was making $3 a week. Yeah, I was making $3 a week for, for this weekly paper route. And that meant that I could uh, buy, at the end of every month, I had free and clear $12. Uh, and that was enough to buy an Avalon Hill Flatbox game. Uh, but there were some, uh, uh, there were some weeks, uh, uh, I think I might be getting the math wrong, but there's some months where you had, you had uh, more than, I think there were, there were five. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Twice. Yeah. Something like that, and so I would get a I'd get a fifteen dollar check, which was just about enough to buy a uh, a uh, Avalon Hill bookcase game, which was sixteen dollars at the time, and my parents would throw in the extra dollar for me. Yeah, four um, times a year. But I'm like, go ahead. Yeah, 
And so then I, but uh, I think Iron Bottom Sound was more than that. And I had to pay for shipping um, because it wasn't on the store shelves. But I did save up and I did uh, order a copy um, and got it in the mail. I think it was the first mail order game that I ever bought. Oh, wow. Uh, And uh, tell me why, first of all, you, you're obviously a naval um, a naval enthusiast, but did you think that did you now we're talking about you know you were sort of a synthesizer and a borrower? Did you think, hey, I can make a game about uh, Iron Bottom Sound? This is the um, the battle, the naval battles around Guadalcanal. I can do this in some way that's been been sort of done, but I can I can improve and refine. Or did you have some new idea that you were going to sort of you know reveal to the world? Well, it's going to make it simpler. Uh, I mean, the, the, I, I don't, I, you know, I suspect I've never played uh, advanced Bismarck since I published, since it became out. I played Iron Bottom Sound since it's come out. And part of it is because it's, it's, it's simpler. Uh, and the other, the other aspect to this that you have to understand, um, uh, Bruce, is that, uh, nobody else wanted to publish it. Yeah, I, I, Bounced it off Don Greenwood, and he said, "No, no, we don't want it." Or you know, and maybe somebody else. I could, I can't re- recall at this point. And so I said, "Well, I guess I'll have to be my own Vanity Press." And uh, because it, it was, it's a fun game. If I play a game and uh, that I've been working on and it's fun, well, then odds are that other people will find it to be fun. And as much as I like history and as much as I want to be historically accurate, you have to have something that's fun to play. And the older I get. I would argue that I'm starting to go towards more at war at sea than I am to Bismarck II in terms of uh, trying to make things simpler, easier, and less complex. So anyway, that's pretty much it. I mean, I I, I published it. It was a success. Uh, It sold well. I was smart on how I um, put it out in terms of I did it in batches of 500. I printed key elements to the game, the counter sheets and the box art. Uh, 2,000 copies, and then the I had a box guy who would do me uh, 500 boxes at a time. And, of course, things like rule books and, and combat cards, you just take them down to the local printer and, and bang out 500 of each every time the, the, you needed another 500, and uh, it sold. Was the box the most expensive thing then? Is that why that was like that? Box I mean, counters, pretty much. Yeah, I think yeah. I, the, the maps were the other thing that we, I did 2,000 all at once. Got it. Yeah. So th- those are the key things. And that was certainly true with Norway 1940 as well, where uh, the counter, the, you, you put your money into your game counters, you put your money into the uh, map, and you put your money into the box art. Okay. Uh, and then only later do you worry about the combat cards and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think printing used to be, um, I think it was a more, I don't want to say a specialty business, but it seems like printing is much more available now than it was before. Uh, you know, cause I can, it seems like if I really wanted to make a game, not that I do, but if I wanted to go out there and, and, and print, publish my own game, it's reason, it's a reasonable thing for me to do. Whereas I, I, I suspect for you, and I just looking at the, I, I pulled out my iron bottom sound, um, box the other day, uh, to, to take a look at it. And it's, it's clearly not an Avalon Hill box. Uh, and clearly, although the, I like the counters, the counters are actually really good. Um, but, uh, it, it's, there's a there's a sort of independent element to it, whereas now it seems like you know there are all these game companies that seem to produce very very uh, high quality um, uh, components uh, without you know 
without having an established, you know, big volume. Is is that as a ex printer? Do you do you have any insight into that business? Oh gosh, yes. Uh, the, uh, the whole computer revolution has completely changed everything, and uh, Illustrator is used so extensively. Um, Mike Resch, who does the uh, World War One games, the uh, big giant ones for GMT, uh, the, the Twilight of the Empires, and yes. Okay, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, and 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 uh, this it's uh, uh, offensive outrance. Is this, that this one of his? Korean one, yes. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, he actually turns into GMT uh, finished Illustrator maps, and uh, GMT, to their credit, I would be the first one to say this, uh, gives him a credit for the, and I don't mean a credit by. Uh, the, his name in a box is graphics, but I mean in terms right. of, of cash. <laughs> yeah, he pay they pay him <laughs> uh, for having done the uh, the extra work, and of course by working in Illustrator, it gives him as a designer uh, much more control over his artwork. That's why my relationship with uh, Larry Hoffman is so interesting because the last couple of games that we worked on together. I've been able to you know travel three miles over to his house, maybe on game night. And and after we play finishing a game, we we pop up something on the screen uh, that's you know some artwork that he's looking. I say, well, let's change this. Or mm-hmm. like on the Norway 1940, he he's he's going to be uh, given credit for the English language uh, CRTs. Well, okay. we've moved them around and changed the colors and uh, uh, font size and everything else to fit my concept and my vision of uh, large print, easy to read. Uh, for old people's eyes. And, so, so, uh, so how's that different from before? I mean, let, let's say in the old uh, days when, let's say when Charlie Kibler was making uh, the advanced squad, well, it wasn't advanced at that time, just a squad leader maps. What was, what was happening? How is, how is that different? Well, if it's done in-house, you could, you could, as a designer, could actually walk into Kibler's office and, and see what he was doing and, 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 and work with him on that. Um, but uh, you didn't have as, you didn't have as much choice. Uh, I mean, back in the seventies and the eighties, this is the old days where we had Rubylith. You even—I don't know what that is. I have no idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, Rubylith is is used in overlays, and you had so like the uh, Rommel's War the, uh, from uh, that I did the first copy, of the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some obscene number of overlays on it. You know, eighteen overlays, nineteen overlays. So like one overlay would have all the uh, wadis, another would have the coastline, another ah, the airfield. I, I see. And you have to shoot, and and then the thing is, is what happens if you're off a, a, a 16th of an inch? The the old Avalon Hill game counters when I worked there in the 80s had a gutter of I want to say a quarter inch. Now later, the Japanese at that time were doing a gutter of eight, an eighth of an inch. What's a gutter? That's the area that's around each square game counter. Mm-hmm. So that's when, like, when you would get a set of counters that were misdie cut. Yep. It was because they exceeded that quarter inch in going through the die cutter, and 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 of course, in the case of Avalon Hill, when uh, uh, Eric Dot was buying out all these old print companies, guess what? He also got a lot of old equipment. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and when when he got that old equipment, some of that uh, wasn't didn't have the best register on it, so mm-hmm. you're, you're you would be off. So to make a long story short, we have 
a lot more options in graphics today. We can be a lot more precise and concise in our graphics today. We have a lot more choice in terms of colors. So mm -hmm. back when I was working with the Japanese in the early mid eighties, they had, uh, I'm going to probably be off on the number, but they essentially had 60 or 70 more colors than what was available to an American Pantone mm -hmm. colors. Mm -hmm. uh, that may not seem a lot, but the whole point is, is that you could do more and that that whole philosophy has been telescoped into 2017, where uh, I'm actually thinking about uh, going back into publishing games because uh, I can huh. do a mini run of uh, let's take my Bear Flag Republic. Uh, okay, uh, tell, so let's take it. Tell before, <laughs> before before taking it, let's tell it listeners what that is. Well, Bear Flag Republic is a game that I just started working on about three years ago. It's about the uh, capture of California um, in the Mexican-American War. And most mm -hmm. people go, well, you know, I don't even know anything about it. Well, uh -huh. uh, I did an extensive uh, read on it um, and realized that there was a potential game there. Uh, I got some support. Uh, Joel Toppin, I contacted him at one point to ask him about it. And uh, he, he goes, you should go for it, Jack. Because hmm. he, you know, his Comanche game stuff. I mean, yeah, Comancheria and uh, Navajo Wars. Yep. Because it's kind of the same period, and he's, you know, familiar with uh, what was going on. Okay. We, and we certainly had uh, indigenous people in California. Which of course, we still do. Mm -hmm. um, but it, what it was is that it was my idea and concept of what a um, the future of a war game is going to be. Big map. Big counters. The counters are a, a minimum of an inch square. Okay. An inch square, not five eighths, not three quarters, an inch square. And if, and if it came out in Europe, I was hoping it'd even be larger. Yeah, you're, you and Mark Walker have a lot in common here. Okay, now Mark Walker being uh, he does flying pig. He used to do. Um, oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, he's got uh, some old school tactical. Yeah, those things you you get those things out, and you're like, wow, this count. This is big. This is for this is for old people. Which is, by the way, not a criticism. I oh, I, no, I, no. I I I appreciate that completely. It's like here's a big counter with big. Uh, I, I can see that that combat factor is eight. It's a big eight. Nobody's squinting at anything. Exactly, um, and a, yeah. and a relatively speaking short rule book without too much in the way of. Mm -hmm. um, uh, nickel and dime rules. You always want some nickel and dime rules. Nickel and dime. Tell me about nickel and dime rules. Is that chrome? A chrome, yeah. You yeah. know, um, so-and-so is a special counter that only appears if you put three ships in Monterey. I got it. Okay. Uh, and then appears the next turn as a right. you know, local militia unit. Got it. Um, okay. So anyway, I, I, I kind of owed uh, Uli Blenderman a, a debt. Moments uh, in history? Uh, yes, and, mm -hmm. he, and we worked. Uh, Beth and I worked with him for oh, best part of a decade. Um, and uh, I just felt I, I, I felt that I wanted to get let him have the first offer at his field works in Germany. And mm -hmm. he sent me back uh, a very nice uh, letter. He goes, uh, Jack, uh, I play tested, uh, played the game several times with my friends. Uh, it's a it's a good game, no question about that. But it doesn't. Uh, fit into Spielworks's type of games, which you know they're pretty, they're more Catan-like, I guess would be a way of putting it. But the key thing was, he goes, 
And I asked several of my friends if they knew anything about this, and none of them knew anything about the Mexican-American War, and certainly not what went on in California. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was a fair fair comment. So anyway, it's now at another publisher here in the United mm -hmm. States, and I'm thinking if, if it gets a second uh, uh, reject, I go, well, shoot, well, maybe I'll do it, because I have a good relationship with uh, some companies in terms of getting things distributed, and, mm -hmm. and that's actually going to be one of the items I'm going to talk about uh, with uh, friends at... Um, Tempe next week. Okay, at the Consum World Expo, which I wish I so wish I could go to. Unfortunately, I can't. Um, so tell me another thing. Um, you just made the comment about big maps. Uh, and if you have big maps, I assume that um, you have to move on those maps. And I assume that means that uh, units have uh, big movement factors. Because one of the things that you sent me, uh, and I had, I think I remember Jim Dunnigan having uh, made a similar comment in some uh, article or book that he wrote was that everything, every game, the the smallest movement factor should be four. Yep, I I, I think that is Jim Dunnigan that yeah. I, I forgot that part of it, but yeah. I knew I'd stolen that from somebody. Yeah. Well, tell me about that. What's what does that mean? I mean, uh, w why? Um. Well, it just it, it's it's you want to have a certain uh, an action factor to mm -hmm. give you a concept. I'm uh, toying with a, a another naval design of mine. Well, let's just talk about destroyer captain too. Okay. Um, you with a naval unit, especially you don't want to change the situation on the naval board so quickly. You don't want to have a a, a movement factor of twelve. You know, unless you're an airplane. Yeah, but I mean, if you're a ship, you don't want to have a high effect because the 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 situation will change so quickly. If you're doing, you know, I go, you go, or mm -hmm. some sort of um, where you expend all your movement and then fire at each other, which is you know a simple way of doing your game design, and it works. So what I came up with was that I don't want to have anything really that's less than four, and more than seven. So I try to design the game around that. And it's not that difficult because what you can do is if you, you, you see how far a ship can travel in terms of hexes, and then you look at the hexes and you come up with a number that makes it fit within that four to seven in relationship to the time period. So that's why if I was doing a um, destroyer captain, each turn is going to be three minutes long because that gives me that four to seven uh, ratio, so to speak, mm -hmm. or, or range. Whereas if I'm doing an ironclad game with guns that fire much slower in many cases, especially if you're talk, talking 1880 or 1890, mm -hmm. then what you do is you make the turn five minutes long. Right. And you get that same thing where a, a slow battleship's going to go four or five a turn, a cruiser might go four, five, or six, and a torpedo gunboat might go to, say, seven. Mm -hmm. And that that's just kind of how you work. And then, of course, obviously, if you're disabled or, or slowed down or something, then then two or three makes good sense. Or if you've got a freighter or uh, a, a transports or something like that, it, could, mm -hmm. it adds to it. Right. You have room. I mean, I think that's something that uh, that a lot of designers don't quite understand. Or in the old days, especially, people were so hung up on getting things accurate that they often didn't care whether they were actually that much fun or not. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you, you see this in games where y you spend a lot of time, old games, you spend a lot of time moving things because they're moving, but they're moving slowly and you're not doing a lot of things other than moving where you have these plotted movement games where you plot all these turns and then you just kind of move things and, and, you know, you roll the dice every, uh, you know, 
four or five turns because that's what your you know reload rate is it's a it's a it's a it's definitely a um it's definitely an art a creative art to try to get these things so that they're compelling and they're historical i mean if you if you don't want to make them historical i think it's a lot easier to 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 fiddle with things you just you know change whatever you want to change and make it make it uh more interesting but when you're you're sort of hamstrung by the history you have to you have to make some different decisions so you had you had iron bottom sound you had destroyer captain you had norway 1940 um you are now i think re reprinting norway 1940 that's going to be published by a japanese company and you're going to import some is that true that is correct uh uh, it's, and it's been retitled uh, Hitler Strikes North, mm-hmm. the 1940 um, invasion of Norway. Well, we chatted about that before. I, I'm actually got the proof, the, what hopefully is the final proofs on the game counters right okay. on my screen right now. I will have examples of the artwork at Tempe. Um, and hopefully by September, October, there will be 250 copies uh in English, uh, mm-hmm. and working with the Japanese has just been, uh, as I mentioned in the last interview, very nice. So that's been very cool. And since I'm finished with that, and I'm finishing up with uh, Fleet Admiral uh, with uh, John Krantz, which will be discussed on how we're, when we're going to have a launch date on that uh, okay. for for Consim Press. Um, I've been toying with. I had kind of a. I don't know what's going to come of it, but this will, this is a little tidbit for your audience. Okay. Um, I'm I'm thinking of trying to take the 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 Norway 1940s. I was finishing up with it. I'm going, geez, there's still so many nickel and dime rules, you know, and there's this and there's that. Well, then I said, well, you know, maybe I could do a uh, Spanish American war game that's operational with a tactical board, which was actually reminiscent of Bismarck II. Mm-hmm. And try to make it even more simple, but but where the difference between the battleship Oregon and the uh, uh, Spanish cruiser Lepanto, uh, that there are distinct differences between them, and you can get the nuances. Because one of the things when you do naval game designs is, and you can't, I cannot emphasize this more, mm-hmm. you cannot have generic naval counters. You right. have to have naval counters that represent or show in some fashion what that ship was like. Uh, now, I mean, obviously, if you get down to small craft and destroyers and gunboats and you've got battleships in the same picture, that's difficult. That's one of the reasons why doing or redoing destroyer captains is kind of fun because you, you have a, a more opportunity when you have just destroyers and a couple light cruisers showing the difference between um, a, uh, a Fletcher class destroyer and say a uh, uh, an Italian uh, Arditi uh, destroyer mm-hmm. because there's just again it's that uh, proportions you know you yeah. don't have to you don't have to try to fit in a 35,000 ton battleship <laughs> yeah well the, I think that I think the interesting thing about that is what I think what you're getting at is that the uh, a lot of games can get a sense of place from their map right I mean everybody knows what Stalingrad looks like and you can sort of have the step and the Volga or depending on what your scale is but your uh, naval game is a bunch of water so if you don't do something to create a sense of place using the ships themselves then you I mean, think I think you you just run the risk of creating just a generic, you know, naval war game, which uh, nobody wants to play, uh, because I think the reason people play historical war games is they want to, um, uh, you know, 
participate in that history. So yes, I absolutely, I completely agree with your with your comment about the uh, about the the ships being um, being. Uh, you have to have have specific things about them. Um, or, Let me just finish up one one quick thing here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, one thing on the Spanish American War uh, concept is then it dawned on me. Well, first of all, I don't have to worry about air power. <laughs> so all the game tables in Norway, which are involved with air, they're gone. So they're they're out right out of the picture. But uh, I'm trying to come up with something that's uh, still a little bit more than war at sea but still is easy to play and captures the differences in the ship. So that's anyway, that's, will I be able to do it? Well, we don't know, but uh, okay. at least that's, that's the direction I want to go in. Go on. Is that something <laughs> you would self-publish? I have no idea. Uh, mm. I mean, that's way too early to guess on what okay. I'll do. All right. Um, I, I just want to get back one, one thing that I, I, we, we segued. I just want to get back to one thing about the technical aspect of, of game production um, because I don't know anything about it, and I I, I want to hear what what the what the facts are. I remember in the 1980s, I remember buying specifically. I remember the game, uh, and it actually happened again with the GMT game, which I was very surprised. But um, I bought a copy of Victory Games uh, NATO in 1984, and I got the counter sheet out, and the counters were all rectangular. And I know that they weren't supposed to be rectangular because some of them were more square than others. And the just the die cutting had created this this monstrosity where you know the um, you know the Soviet you know Fifth Guards tank army was was another you know sixteenth of an inch taller than the you know NATO whatever West German panzer division and it was they were all these elongated things and i get games now from places like gmt although i did have a notable uh, hiccup with one um but uh i even from comp small companies like legion war games has great counters and they're just perfectly square so well die cut what's the difference what are these just i mean is it is it precision alignment because of computers or what, what's happening there that too um in the old days, and I'm stressed the old days. Yeah. You you literally uh, would have a guy lay down uh, essentially uh, a elongated razor, mm -hmm. and they and you would set it up so that it was uh, it would be cutting the same you know roughly. Well, you're doing this by hand. Uh, maybe the guy was a little hungover that day, <laughs> okay. uh, and then when the die was finished. Uh, you would keep that die, and okay. it began the thing back in the day. If I would cost like five hundred bucks, which was uh, more money than it is today. Yeah, of course. Uh, and so there were you were really limited on uh, again. Get getting back to my point earlier point that we've got a lot more uh, opportunities available to us today. The uh, die cutting, uh, the, the die as they refer to it would do the cutting, and sometimes it was poor. Now, the fact that it came from Victory Games, uh, guess what? Uh, Monarch was doing it. So, <laughs> again, yeah. it could have been a, a poor old die that they hauled out from someplace or, or, or whatever. Now, of course, if you're doing it with a laser, uh, you even get more precision. Now, just to give you a little handle on uh, Legion and just to give you a sense of how this uh, hobby's got a real cooperative aspect to it. I mean, I uh -huh. told you the story about how Revolution has helped me, Revolution yes. Games. Revolution Games. RevolutionGames.us for the listeners. Revolution Games and Legion and uh, the stuff that uh, uh, 
uh, we're bringing in Pacific Fury and now uh, Red October, uh, not Red October, uh, Red Typhoon, Red Typhoon, um, and, and I think a, a third company is in there someplace. Uh, they actually gang run their game counters. So uh, this last one, uh, Revolution had one and a half full sheets. Uh, Legion might have had uh, two sheets, and maybe the other company had a half a sheet, mm-hmm. and they all took them into the same person who specializes in this, so to speak. And this mm-hmm. is a, this is a, uh, an American company. Uh, Donald Trump will be proud of. Yeah, it is an American company. I remember I talked to Randy Lee, and he said he specifically found an American printer up there in um, Wisconsin or Minnesota. Yeah, and uh, another fellow who uh, does that same thing, keeps it domestic, is uh, Ed Wimble at Clash of Arms. Uh huh. Okay. And I'm sure there's others. I just yeah. are the ones I'm mo- most familiar with. You know, whereas uh, GMT and of course now Victory Point, uh, they send their stuff off to China. And the, and mm-hmm. the, the advantage of that is that the price is about a third of what it is here. And the Chinese and the Japanese, but especially the Chinese uh, here, uh, can do some excellent. Uh, manufacturing work. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to have um, South Kobang uh, game at the um, convention, which is uh, made by a new game company from Shanghai. And it's a big two-map game on uh, uh, a battle between the Chinese and the Vietnamese in 1979. Uh, and I've got uh, – my wife's actually um, printing the rules for me today. So. Oh, great. <laughs> Uh, we're going to set that up and, and take that up for a, a, a flight. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but so that's a, that's another thing that's always been an aspect of my approach to stuff. I was one of the early people to bring in uh, English games. In fact, uh, my friend Andrew Smith, who I mentioned at the beginning of this, brought the first copy of eighteen um, twenty nine over here to the United mm-hmm. States, which morphed into eighteen thirty and all the uh, railroad games because I was yep. at Avalon Hill at the time. And to I Francis thought, Tresham, right? Exactly correct. And uh, mm-hmm. I introduced that game to uh, the Avalon Hill staff, and we had a great time with it. And I, yeah. I, I can still consider them to be the best games out there, yeah. that whole series. Uh, so I'm taking South Cobang to the convention. I'm taking the Italian, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, Antibellum. Uh, new uh, Hell in the Alps game, uh, magazine mm-hmm. game to the convention. And I do have uh, reading the rules right now today and uh, sending some notes back to Italy as to how they can improve a couple points on their English. <laughs> okay. Uh, but th- th- that's always been kind of my aspect or, and feeling and, and working with ADG. I mean, gosh, ADG, they put a lot of money in my pocket. Mm-hmm. So, and then were distributor, right? Right. Pardon? When you were a distributor, is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, now yeah. every Tuesday, I go over to Larry's and we pop up for you know, and just get back to your very first thing you brought up this morning. Uh huh. Um, we have played the three of us, Larry and myself on one side, and Harry Rowland, who's a brilliant uh, uh, game player. Uh huh. Um, we play Pursuit of Glory, and that's all we play. Uh, we played a couple other things, but uh, we must have played close to 90 games of Pursuit of Glory. Don't play me in Pursuit of Glory. You're going to get your ass handed to you. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Um, but so, but why? Because it's a brilliant game design, and we just absolutely love it. Um, and so, therefore, every, you... Every Tuesday, we get together, and we play usually two, sometimes three turns, save it, and come back to it the following Tuesday. And then some games, of course, we play two turns, and we surrender, and we start a new game. Hmm. Yeah. So now you you have... This is... um. Yeah, this is a uh, this is that's a World War One game. Is that right? Yeah, it's a Pursuit of Glory is a son of um, 
Paths of Glory, the Ted Racier game. But Ted, Ted didn't design Pursuit of Glory, did he? No, he did not. No, it no, was no. designed by um, a, a father and a son, Stock. Okay. Name, and it's the uh, only game that, to the best of my knowledge, they've ever done. And I think the father has a master's, if not more, in um, essentially Middle East history and Middle East politics. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's very little uh, uh, that he missed. I've uh, we've over we've been plan- doing this for four years now, five, mm-hmm. and uh, we. Uh, uh, all of us have read extensively on the the period and the, and the whole role of the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans and Russia and Salonika and Gallipoli. Of course, Gallipoli and Australians, you can do the math there. Uh, Suez, um, the Mesopotamian campaign, everything going on in Persia. It's mm-hmm. just a brilliant game. And and it's uh, how many players is it? It's two players. So it's two players. But, but uh, with the allies you've got the russians you've got the serbians you've potentially have the greeks you certainly have the french and the british okay uh you've got some indian troops um and we just you know play it okay well i'm uh i'm i'm definitely going to put that on my list uh so that's the game that you play over and over yep absolutely uh, all right well then uh, there's a game you should take a look at since uh you gave me a recommendation i'm gonna give you one you have to look at uh, legion war games uh dn bien the final gamble Oh, okay. That's, uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, just play it and tell me what you think, because uh, I I am singing its praises to pretty much anybody who will listen. I think it's one of the best games I've ever played in my life. Well, I'll see, uh, I believe I'm going to see Roger uh, just next week, so I'll make make sure that that's on my uh, list. Yep, ask ask about, uh, yep. Perfect. Well, I'm. I want to. You know, I want to make sure that. Uh, you know, I have so many questions to to ask you, but um, I don't want to. Um, we could be could be here for for hours and days. Uh, what what I do want to ask is, you know, you've done a lot of things in the hobby. Um, you, another thing that you're doing is you're doing. Um, you, you've written some books as well. Uh, make sure the listeners know that you've written some stuff about the Norway campaign. Um, what's the what? Where are you in terms of you know, hobby involvement. What's the what's the biggest priority for you right now? Well, it's not books. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, it's, it's getting my health back and uh, and uh, games. So, uh, game uh, game work of uh, one type or another. Uh, do you do do you, but do you want to do you want to um, you know sort of are you a are you looking to develop designs? Do you want to distribute? Do you want to you know publish? Get get other designers work out there? Do you want no. to? Uh, no, no, no. I'm I'm. Pr- I'm pr- Perfectly self-centered. I, I, at my age and uh, in, in at this point in life, uh, I just want to finish up some of my uh, some some projects I'd like to see light of day. Fair enough. And uh, you know, my relationship right now with uh, Japanese Command has been uh, such a positive one, and, and mm-hmm. with the others in the in the in the hobby and. Uh, and I go out of my way to try to help other people. I mean, it's like of course you, you can always uh, contact me and get my opinion on something or some thoughts. And and as uh, Harry Rowland once said, that if I recommend something, he'll do just the opposite because he knows <laughs> it's probably the best choice. <laughs> okay. And that goes back to Empire at Arms. Uh, uh-huh. And I told him, yeah, he should license it to Avalon Hill, and then they sat on it for about five years. Is that what happened? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, uh, and. You know, it's just it's just one of those things. Um, it's too bad. Yeah, but they finally did come out, and uh, I sure did. So I've got two copies. Mm. 
So, um, well, the um, well, I think that uh, what we should leave our listeners with then, since your your um, goal is to finish up some projects that you're uh, working on. What's the what's the project that we already talked about? Um, uh, Hitler Strikes North, the former uh, Norway 1940, um, and we talked about Bear Flag Republic uh, and your Spanish-American War uh, ideas. Anything else that we should uh, we well, should have? Fleet Admiral Jutland, Fleet Admiral Two is is my. Uh, it, it's the only. Let's put it this way: it's the other bookend to the Advanced Bismarck uh, Miniatures game. Okay. Well, this is my statement on uh, naval combat 1914-1916 between um, Britain and Germany. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's four maps and with, uh, with with half maps to boot. And um, actually, I take that back. It's three large full-size maps with three half maps that can be added to it for certain scenarios. Uh, some scenarios only require one map. And uh, it... Uh, basically represents about seven, eight years worth of research and a, a chapter in one book, so mm -hmm. published book, I might add. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, I'm possibly going to re redo, uh, well, Destroyer Captain's supposed to be done. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'd like to do an Ironclad game, and I'd like to do a uh, strategic sailing ship game. So if, if I if I can do all that, that would be great. If I don't don't make it, I don't. But that's, okay. that's kind of the goal. Well, we hope that we definitely are all rooting for you to make it. Tell us where we can find you uh, on the. Is there a is there a website that people can keep track of you, or is there a board quarter deck game? Inter quarter deck international at Consum World is the easiest. Quarter deck and okay, I'll, I'll put up a link to the uh, to the Consum World forums folder. Exactly. Uh, correct. For quarter deck international, and uh, listeners can uh, click on that and just see what. Uh, what Jack's got in store. Jack, uh, I've enjoyed your games for decades. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me, um, and uh, I hope to talk to you again uh, soon. Thank you.